Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox in for Roy Green this weekend. And on the Roy Green podcast, we're going to talk to Alan Lichtman, the American historian and author of The Case for Impeachment about this week's activities in Washington, D.C. and indeed the impeachment of Donald Trump. Anthony Kosh from McGill University talks about the successor to Andrew Scheer. Who might that person be and what values does that individual need to represent to voters in order to win next time around. And researcher Mario Consaker will bring on the case for sticking with Merry Christmas. That and much more coming right up here on the Roy Green Podcast. Enjoy. A president has impeached for only the third time in the United States history. That all happened in just the last few days. So what does it all mean? To take a look at this, we are delighted to welcome Professor Alan Lickman to the program. He, Professor Lickman is an American political historian who teaches at American University in Washington, D.C. He's the author of The Case for Impeachment and is perhaps best known for his uncanny ability to successfully and correctly predict seven of the last eight presidential elections going back to 1984. Professor Lickman, Alan, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much. It's been nine presidential elections since 84. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, all right, then. I stand corrected. Uh, we'll get to the predictions for 2020 in a few minutes, Alan. But first of all, just from your perspective as, a, as an historian, and particularly having written extensively on the notion of impeachment, what is your take on the events of this week? Well, several. First of all, cut through all the hyperbole. These are the most grave charges ever leveled against an American president. Only two other presidents have ever been impeached by the full house. Andrew Johnson for violating the Tenure of Office Act, which was later considered to be unconstitutional, restricting his ability to fire cabinet members, and Bill Clinton for covering up a private consensual affair. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is charged with coercing a vulnerable foreign ally to help him cheat in the 2020 election by launching or even just announcing a baseless investigation of his top political rival. That's never happened before in American history. And he is charged with undermining national security for his own political purposes by, again, coercing a vulnerable foreign ally, in this case, to push the Russian-Putin propaganda line that it was really the Ukraine and the Democrats, not the Russians, who meddled in the 2020 election. The charges are extremely grave, even graver than the charges against Richard Nixon, which involved only domestic matters. And, of course, he resigned before he was impeached by the full house. The other thing that's different between now and the Nixon era is in the Nixon era, uh, Republicans first united behind Nixon, but ultimately when they realized he had violated his oath of office, uh, quite a few Republicans turned against him and it was ultimately the leadership of his own party that forced him out. We don't see that today. Today, Republicans blindly unite behind Donald Trump 
no matter what, and seem not to care about the evidence or the gravity of the charges. And the, the line that they're using, because they're still in lockstep, you're quite right, Alan, they are, they're absolutely united behind Mr. Trump at this point, uh, basically saying the Democrats simply have not been able to digest the fact that they lost the 2016 election and have been looking for revenge or reversal in some form for the last three years and have finally succeeded it. That's the corner, that's the hill they've staked out, and that's the hill they plan to die on or not in this case. Correct. And it's a false narrative. Yes, there were some elements within the Democratic Party, uh, like Maxine Waters, who wanted to impeach him for violating the Emoluments Clause or obstructing justice, as pointed out by the Mueller report. But those efforts were struck down by the great majority of Democrats and stoutly resisted by the Democratic leadership of Nancy Pelosi. She did not want to impeach this president. That's right. You know, the Republican Party used to be the party of personal responsibility. But Donald Trump and the Republicans now take responsibility for nothing. It wasn't Nancy Pelosi's fault that Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, not just in that phone call, but in a month-long, totally illegal enterprise, sought to get this vulnerable foreign nation to help them cheat in 2020. Donald mm. Trump brought this on himself. Nancy Pelosi didn't force him to do that. So let's, uh, if you don't mind, it's kind of an aside story, yeah. and yet he's a player, and he's been described by some who used to be within the, the Trump administration as a hand grenade that eventually is going to go off and blow us all up. And I'm talking about Rudy Giuliani, who's just been to Ukraine, cranking out some kind of new documentary or new series of informations about the, the behind-the-scenes stuff that Trump, of course, claims is all perfect. Absolutely. Look, uh, I used to be a great admirer of Rudy Giuliani. I actually once was his advisor on his uh, Charter Review Commission, but he has long since lost it. He now cares only about his own financial benefit, about cozying up to Donald Trump, and by getting into the media spotlight. He is so mm -hmm. unhinged that I couldn't believe it. He said, you know, it's bad enough Donald Trump says Democrats have been out to impeach me from day one, which is false. Now Rudy Giuliani takes that up five notches and say Democrats want to execute me. What kind of sane person says things like that? But to get back to Earth, the critical point is the crime goes on. President Trump has continued to endorse Rudy Giuliani as operating under his instructions. Mm -hmm. And even... As the impeachment was going on, Rudy Giuliani, as you say, was back in the Ukraine conspiring with the most corrupt elements to help Donald Trump cheat in 2020. Now, here's the rub, too. The Republicans have said that the Steele dossier was the crime of the century because Christopher Steele, who, who was hired first by, by the way, anti-Trump Republicans, not the Democrats, then the Democrats, it was the crime of the century because he got information from the Russians. Well, if that was the crime of the century, then what Trump and Giuliani are doing must be the crime of the millennium. Of course, they're not just getting information from the Ukrainians. They're conspiring with the worst elements 
in Ukraine to attack their political opponents. So now we've seen Trump in the past with several of his uh, former associates, Manafort being one and others, lawyers mostly, uh, who have at a certain point in time become expendable and have been tossed under the bus. Do you expect Giuliani to eventually receive the same treatment? If Donald Trump thinks it would help him to say, Rudy, who? Barely know the guy. I don't know yeah. who he's working for. Absolutely. You know, there's a joke going around that if Melania ever filed for divorce, Donald Trump's response would be, Melania who? Barely knew her. <laughs> Which may be true, actually. Well, it, it, it's uh, it, it's playing out uh, in a strange way now because the impeachment vote has been taken. Uh, it was a very interesting moment when Speaker Pelosi was reading the final tallies of the votes, and there was um, a, a, a sort of a surge of emotion from uh, some Democratic members of the House, and Pelosi looked over at them. She didn't say a word, but she shut that little outburst down with a withering glance that would have taken most people off right off at the knees. She doesn't want any of that kind of emotion. There's no triumph in this. And yet she's now decided to put the thing on hold and not just march it up to the Senate automatically. What's that about? It's a brilliant maneuver. Uh, Mitch McConnell is maybe the second most corrupt person in Washington after Donald Trump, and he gives him a good battle. Remember, this is the guy who was so corrupt that he refused to, for a year to even hold a hearing on President Barack Obama's entirely lawful uh, nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. Now he said, in violation of the oath that you take as a juror under the Constitution in the Senate trial, which says you're going to be impartial, he says, I'm not impartial. I don't want to hold a real trial. I just want this to come to the Senate so we can get rid of it. You know, impeachment is the most solemn, most important constitutional element of our democracy, along with an election. And uh, McConnell has made a mockery of it. It doesn't care what people think of him. So I think Nancy Pelosi is absolutely right. The only leverage she has is withholding, sending the articles on into the Senate until we get at least some semblance of a fair trial with real witnesses. Who ever heard of the notion that you don't need witnesses in a trial because everything should take place in the charging phase? You might as well shut down our whole system of justice if that was true. So then uh, it, this is obviously, uh, at very least, a stalling technique because we are literally uh, right at Christmas and New Year's and the holiday break and, and both houses will stand down to some degree or another. How long can this go on before uh, push comes to shove and somebody says, all right, let's, let's get this done one way or another? It can go on indefinitely. There's no pressure on Nancy Pelosi to send those articles over. You know, Noah Feldman, Harvard professor, who gave a very good testimony before the House, wrote an incredibly weird, off-base, entirely misleading article saying, under the Constitution, you're not impeached until the House transmits the articles to the Senate. That's nowhere in the Constitution. He's reading something into the Constitution which I can't fathom why he's done it, because it's now become a Republican talking point. All the Constitution says is the House has sole authority over impeachment. 
Right. So what the House says on impeachment goes, not what Noah Feldman concocts in some fever dream of his. Joined by Alan Lickman from American University in Washington, D.C. We're talking about the impeachment proceedings south of the line. As is always the case on The Roy Green Show, our listener lines are wide open. You can join us toll-free from anywhere in Canada, 1-800-263-2428. David knows that and uh, has a comment or a question to include in our conversation going forward. David, hello. Well, with all due respect, Sterling, to your Professor Emeritus from American University, the lie that like was perpetrated tongue, was perpetrated number one by Mr. Schiff. When he, yeah, he, uh, do you have a question, David? No, I'm. What well, question? I, I watched the complete uh, uh, judicial listening. The, the the three experts were asked point blank, give one fact that uh, determines this impeachment case, and we're all silent. The, uh, the, the duty of the president also is to make sure that his country doesn't deal with corrupt entities. The corrupt entity was the Ukraine, and he was trying to... And Joe Biden actually admitted to a corrupt act. So please, Sterling, next time you get... A, a professor emeritus. Can well, you listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm very comfortable. All right, David, thank you. I appreciate the call. And, and not everyone agrees with what has gone on, Alan Lickman. Uh, and uh, the, Let me answer, the, David, because yeah, sure. said is factually incorrect. First of all, Joe Biden did not engage in a corrupt act. With the support of the United States government, every one of our European allies and the IMF, he ousted a corrupt prosecutor who wasn't prosecuting anything, right. including the company for which his son Hunter served on the board. So the opposite of what David has said is true. Secondly, Trump hasn't fought corruption in the Ukraine or anywhere in the world. His national security team told him on both conversations, be sure to stress the need to fight corruption. He never mentioned the word corruption. He only talked about investigating his political rival and promoting the Putin propaganda line that would get Russia off the hook for the 2016 meddling and open the door for them to meddle in 2020. His budget cut corruption aid to the Ukraine. He never reviewed corruption when he suspended the aid, and earlier his Defense Department had certified that Ukraine had surmounted the bar for corruption and was eligible for the aid, which was supported by everyone on his national security team. So much for the mythology. Okay. Uh, the the night that this uh, historic account took place and the actual impeachment uh, evidence was heard, voted on, and the tallies were taken, the Democrats held a debate in California. The leaders, uh, there were seven candidates on stage in California the same night. I don't know if anybody watched it. We're kind of a little, uh, a lot of fatigue in that regard in terms of watching proceedings uh, on television. Is there yes. any? Is there anybody in that field of what, 15 or 16 or maybe 12 now Democratic candidates, Alan, that you see could do a number on Donald Trump? I don't see it. You know, I don't either. 
yes, under my keys to the White House that uh, has predicted, you could say eight of nine, I would say nine of nine because the 2000 election where I predicted Gore was stolen, but that's another argument. Uh, what under my keys to the White House, what are my keys that would count against the party holding the White House, Donald Trump and the Republicans, would be if the opposition party, now the Democrats, can come up with an inspirational, charismatic nominee. Right. Barack Obama in 2008 or JFK in 1960. And I don't see it. I don't see that spark. Mm. I don't see that inspirational quality coming out of any of these candidates. However, I will give it one caveat, and that is the field is still crowded. It's hard to stand out in a crowded field. Once a nominee is selected, maybe that nominee could emerge. But at this point, I don't see it. All right. Back to the phones. Mark, welcome. And uh, what is your comment, please? Yes. Hi. I just I have a first of all, I have a couple of questions and then I have a comment. First of all, how can you. Uh, say that that uh, there was even evidence when the evidence is based on on hearsay and, and overheard conversation. Not a single right, let me of evidence was, let was me there. That second, uh, uh, Mark, 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 second, Mark, just take. Stop. President Obama said blankets and pillows over to Ukraine, while, while President Donald Trump sent the, the the defensive weapons. There was no pretty, no quid pro quo. There was no nothing. But Democrats keep moving the bar up of constantly something di- 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 different. Third, okay, so you, you, you asked two questions and given us a comment. So, Mark, thank you. Uh, a, little, a, a little overkill there, uh, Alan, but your, your thoughts or your reaction, at least. Right. Number one, as Michael Cohen explains, Donald Trump does not ask you things directly. He speaks in a code. But read the transcripts. Donald Trump has said astoundingly, the code is obvious to a middle schooler. In the context of talking about aid, Donald Trump says, I want you to do us a favor. But then he adds, though, making it conditional. And what is the favor? First of all, it is to push the Vladimir Putin propaganda line that it was Ukraine and the Democrats, not the Russians, that interfered in the 2016 election. And secondly, it was to investigate the Bidens. There was no question there. As Sondland, ambassador who does speak directly to Donald Trump, it's not hearsay, said, Zelensky will do anything you ask. Of course he would. His very survival of his country depends on Donald Trump. Secondly, as I already explained, the the withholding of the aid cannot be explained by any attempt to fight corruption in the Ukraine. The the aid was already certified. It was supported by every member of his national security team. The only reason the aid was withheld was to get what, again, Ambassador Sondland testified to from direct contact with Trump and from the phone call that was overheard. What Trump really cares about in the Ukraine, not the war with Russia, but the investigations that he wanted. There's plenty more evidence that I could go into. Uh, the Republican talking points just don't hold any water. 
As a complete aside, though, what's the deal with Hunter Biden, Alan? Here's a guy with absolutely no petro sector experience whatsoever who gets paid 50 grand a month to sit on the board of a petro company in a foreign country. Right. What's the story? It's obvious. It, the story is obvious. Uh, this company, Burisma, was trying to burnish its reputation by appointing figures with recognizable names. I think it was the president of Poland or some such that he also appointed, as well as other figures that could be recognized around the world. Probably Hunter Biden shouldn't have taken that thing. I I, I think it was unwise, but Hunter Biden did not in any way influence American policy. That's the point. And as I already explained, Joe Biden not only didn't stop the prosecution of Burisma, the company Biden was sitting on, his son was sitting on, but he actually facilitated prosecutions by getting rid of the corrupt prosecutor. Also, the height of irony that Donald Trump should be criticizing the Bidens because Hunter Biden happened to sit on one board when Donald Trump himself, because he didn't divest from any of his enterprises, is benefiting from his sons, not just sitting on some board, but running the entire Trump organization and going around the country and the world making money for the president. The irony is thick enough to cut with a butter knife. Uh, Alan, I have to leave it there, sir. I'm fresh out of time, and I'm very grateful for yours on uh, on this pre-Christmas weekend. It's it's uh, historical times in which we live, and it's uh, wonderful to have an historian like yourself able to at least uh, parse a few phrases for us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Alan. My pleasure. Take care. Well, it has been a tumultuous time in Canada this week for particularly the leader, excuse me, the now former leader or soon-to-be former leader of the Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer. As, uh, well, controversy continues to follow Mr. Scheer even after he announced his resignation. Joining us to talk about this, and uh, we'll take some calls along the way as well, is uh, Anthony Kosh. Mr. Kosh is a McGill University student and political commentator and also found founder of a movement called Hashtag Sheer Must Go. Anthony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. When did the Hashtag Sheer Must Go start? So I actually went on television, on CBC Newsnet, the day after the election, and gave my personal spiel about why I thought Mr. Sheer had to go. The organization and the broader organization, like efforts to remove Mr. Sheer as leader kicked up around a week after that. And uh, what were your personal reasons that uh, got you so uh, so uh, aggressive right from the get-go? Well, I think what was clear to me, and I, I thought the campaign was going to go poorly from a while before then, because as I said repeatedly in the past, the Conservative Party of Canada has essentially ran the same campaign five times in a row, running the same message without anything really. There's no articulation of a national vision of any sort of substantive nature whatsoever, but there was a lot of people who were saying, just wait and see, Andrew Scheer's going to pull off the victory. And then mm-hmm. he didn't, and it wasn't even close, nowhere near as close as some people were suggesting. So what it really came down to for me was that I believe, and I continue to believe, that this country is in the midst of a national unity crisis. I think that Justin Trudeau is a bad prime minister and is detrimental to the continued health of Canada as a united country. Mm-hmm. And because I believe that, I think it's essential that we have a conservative leader 
who is in the capacity to defeat him in the next election. And based on the facts as they were presented at the conclusion of the last vote, it was adamantly, abundantly clear to me, sorry, that Mr. Schur simply wasn't that guy. And we talk a lot and have been talking a lot, Anthony, since the election about values. The reason being, because uh, as you just said, Mr. Scheer is, is, if anything, guilty of poorly articulating conservative values. So let's start with that. And we're going to open up our phone lines. We're going to do a lot this hour on that very thing. What are Canadian conservative values from where you're sitting, Anthony? And where did Mr. Scheer go off the rails? Well, what I, what I think really matters to me, so I'm very conscious of the fact that the Conservative Party of Canada, now a lot of people don't realize this, they think the Conservative is a Conservative is a Conservative, but the Conservative Party of Canada is ideologically diverse to an extent that is not necessarily seen in the other major parties in Canada. We've got Agreed. Social, yeah, so we've got social conservatives, you know, people who are more focused on social conservative issues. You've got the free marketer types who are all about free trade and capitalism and this. Then you've got some more red Tory types. Uh, that you might see, like think of a Theresa May in the United Kingdom or back to the days of a Bill Davis-style premier in Ontario. Um, and then you've got national security conservatives, foreign policy hawks. So it really is a diverse array of ideological positioning. And I think any successful conservative leader has to come up with a blend of those policy positions and those philosophical traditions in a capacity that not only enables the party to remain unified, but is also packaged in a way that average, everyday, not particularly hardcore partisan Canadians can buy into and feel comfortable voting for. So what I think where we really failed with Mr. Scheer in the last couple of years is that we failed to articulate a substantive national conservative vision for what we wanted Canada to look like today, tomorrow, in five years, 10, 20 years from now. Okay, And in the absence of the articulation of that vision, on the economy, on foreign policy, on the environment. The only thing that was really left to be commented on by people was a lot, it was occupied disproportionately by social issues, such as uh, Mr. Shear's previous positions on same-sex marriage and abortion. Right. And right. then his inability afterwards to articulate a coherent position personally or otherwise. And I think, you know, as much as my party and partisans in my party, I think have rightfully in some sense accused Mr. Trudeau of being out of touch with everyday Canadians, I think we finally are coming to the realization that on several key issues, the Conservative Party of Canada is deeply out of touch with typical everyday Canadians. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity that's now been presented to us to rectify that disconnect. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Peter McKay uh, used the all-Canadian analogy uh, describing the outcome of the election. Mr. Scheer had a breakaway on an open net and managed to miss the net. Was it his to lose, and did he lose it because he just lost it, as you say, because he wasn't the guy? So so I, I think that the stats weigh this out. So it was interesting. So this is one of the conversations that I was having with some people in what we refer to as the war room, okay, in the run-up to the campaign and throughout the campaign, up, running up to election night, was they kept saying, Anthony, you got to look at the numbers. Mr. Trudeau is the least popular one-term prime minister in essentially Canadian history as far as the polling data they had available to him. And that was true. Mr. Trudeau's numbers were not particularly favorable. I said, but what you guys have to realize is that Mr. Trudeau doesn't have to be loved. He has to be less hated than the other guy, right. than our guy, in certain portions of the country, right? And that bore true. 
So, for example, Mr. Scheer, you can see that what I've always said is the big advantage he had in the run-up to this election was that Canadians had no idea who he was. Now, you might think politically that's not necessarily always the best thing, but it, it is supremely advantageous in that there are no pre- negative pre-existing notions or preconceived notions about your candidate that can muddy the waters for people already, okay? So he truly got that opportunity to find himself on his own terms to a certain extent. Problem is he failed in doing so. You can see public available, publicly available polling data shows us that throughout the campaign, the more people saw and heard of Mr. Scheer, the more his unfavorability rating skyrocketed. So by the end of the campaign, it was very clear that most Canadians were really not fond of him. And even today, if you look at Mr. Scheer's personal popularity, it is substantially lower than the popularity of the party itself. Okay? So he was definitely a drag. And I can tell you anecdotally, you talk to people in the GTA or in places like that, just the truly swing-riding areas of the country, right. even in other parts that are still fairly solidly conservative, they'll tell you that when they were knocking on doors, a common response that was being heard was, you know what, guys, I really don't like Trudeau. I think, you know, this SNC level and stuff was bad. I don't think he deserves to stay as prime minister. But I got to tell you that Andrew Shudai just rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that was a recurring theme that happened for a lot of people. It was like, I wanted to vote conservative this time. I didn't want to vote for Justin Trudeau, but I just, I, I can't see myself bringing myself to vote to make sure that to make Andrew Scheer prime minister of this country. So what was the block? What was the what was the big stumbling block? And there are all sorts of different reasons, anecdotally from millions of voters, Anthony. But boil it down, because I was one of those people too. I very much uh, wanted to vote for the conservative uh, representative in my in my riding, but I I did not believe in Andrew Scheer. Like you, he simply for me was not the guy, not even close. And so what was the block? What was what was the not the guy reason for you? So I think this is really what it comes down to. Is if I'm a, if I'm a Canadian voter, okay, and I'm like, okay, I'm upset with this SNC Lavalin thing. I don't particularly like Justin Trudeau, but I know what the Liberals are proposing. I know what their vision for Canada is. I and I, you know, let's say I broadly based agree with some of the fundamental tenets, right? I think we can broadly agree that there's been a lot of successes in Canada, and fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, a lot of those things have been implemented by Liberal governments in the past and have been accepted or adopted in some sense by the modern Conservative Party today. So I think what ended up happening is we failed to articulate a properly alternative vision. Like, I, you know, right. honestly, when, when I ask you, like, what, why did Andrew Scheer want to be Prime Minister? That's what I would ask people. Like, I think that's the question, right? Every great advertiser, marketer will tell you, you start with the why, and then you give the how. You don't give the how and then get to the why. It's, that's the way you're supposed to properly communicate. Our campaign was a mishmash patchwork of, once again, a array of boutique tax credits. You could have a tax credit for this, a tax credit for that. And then we talked about how we wanted to build pipelines. I'm obviously pro-pipeline, but that's not a national vision. And right. I think that, that's the thing, right? I mean, if I'm a voter in the greater Toronto area, and even if I'm, you know, I, yeah, I don't have anything against pipelines, I'm saying, okay, sure, but, like, what does that pipeline do for me? So we got to articulate that better. But at the same time, it's like, you know, the whole boutique tax credit thing, we're going to bring back this, we're going to bring back that, doesn't really excite people. And to be quite frankly, I don't even think it's all that conservative, right? The issue with tax credits, you talk to regular people, they'll tell you, yeah, they're great. The problem is you only see them at the end of the tax season, and it's a pain to actually properly fill out your tax returns a lot of the time in order to qualify for all of them. So I, you know, I'm a big proponent of why don't you just propose cutting taxes in general so that everybody can benefit for it. But... Again, to summarize, essentially, we've not articulated a vision. 
We offered people, hey, my name's Andrew Shearer, huh? we're the Conservative Party, or right. not Justin Trudeau. And that wasn't enough for people. It's like, okay, great, that's fine, but who are you? What are you proposing? What's your vision for Canada? How are you going to bring this country forward? And we failed to tell them how we were going to do that. Interesting stuff, Anthony. Let me take a quick break, during which I want to open up the phone lines, because I know I'm not the only conservative voter in the country who was frustrated uh, in October by the leader to the point where I quite honestly, in good conscience, couldn't vote for his party, and it drove me absolutely bats. Were you in that case, too? And it's about this value stuff that Anthony keeps alluding to, and and, and the fact is that there there seems to have been a tremendous lack of, of articulating conservative values. Anthony says basically it boils down to liberal light. That's not conservative. What do you think here? Let's open up the phone lines. We'll take a break while we do this. Joined on the line from Montreal by Anthony Kosh, who is a conservative commentator, McGill political science student, and founder of a movement called Hashtag Sheer Must Go. Well, that's ancient history now. Were you? What was your reaction when he said, I'm out? Uh, honestly, relief more than excitement, anything else. Um, so it was interesting, because as much as the Sheer camp, if we will, was trying to say that this was the result of you know, Mr. Sear having a conversation with his 14-year-old son, realizing he didn't know him very well, and you know, coming up with this decision. Um, the day before, he was announcing endorsements. You can even see there was an article out today. Peter Kent was just about to put a video live with his endorsement of Mr. Sear and explain why he needs to stay on as leader. So it was pretty sudden. Um, we knew, I, I knew about the story with the private, uh, the private school funding and all that shit about three days before it became public. Mm. And I, we, I could, nobody could really have foreseen that he was going to resign as abruptly as he did. Uh, we knew he called a, an emergency caucus meeting originally, which was supposed to be later in the day on that Thursday that he did end up resigning. And then when we woke up that morning, it had been moved to the morning and then towards the end of the day he had resigned. But honestly, what it came down to for me, I was very relieved. This was going to be extremely divisive for the party in a capacity even more than it already was. And um, in the run-up to that April convention, that hypothetical April convention that now will no longer come to pass, uh, it, it would have been very bad. And conservatives, unfortunately, would have been forced to look inwards instead of being able to do the real job, right, the Canadians want us to do, which is to hold Justin Trudeau to account. Right. Let's uh, talk to some voters here, Anthony, because uh, we opened up the phone lines. I'll repeat the number in case you missed it first time around. It's 1-800-263-2428. And we'll start in Edmonton. TJ, welcome aboard. Hello. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think Sheer is a good candidate, stuck by his values. Um, We shouldn't uh, judge him on something that was 16 years ago, like we didn't judge uh, Trudeau on his blackface, right? He had a belief about same-sex marriages, and, uh, you know, he wasn't opening a debate again. Same as he stated, he wasn't opening a debate about abortion again. So, TJ, I, I get all that, and, and, and I agree with you, but why did the Conservative Party and Mr. Scheer personally allow that that albatross to be hung around his neck again to use a Peter McKay analogy, and I'm not a McKay fan, by the way, but he happened to say a couple of smart things. They let they hung that around his neck, TJ, and he couldn't handle it quickly, succinctly, and move on. He allowed that to just weigh him down for the entire campaign. I agree that uh, yeah, he didn't uh, jump on it and nip it in the butt right away and, and fight fiercely against it. Uh, they allowed him to beat it. Um, 
but we're going to see here in another four years when we have a new uh, leader and uh, I think that uh, we've got some good candidates out there that will uh, will bring our party forward and uh, continue to bring our conservative values right Okay, now TJ, just before I let you go, sir, do you have a favorite? Um, now, no one's declared yet, but clearly there are favorites. Do you have one? Well, I'm hoping W. Brett Wilson will run, but uh, uh, Rona Ambrose. Hopefully, she'll get back in the game. Maybe uh, Mr. P- uh, Polio or Poly- Boulevard. Polyev, Pierre Polyev. Yeah, out of Ontario. There, we need mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. Honestly, we need somebody out of the east because no one's listening to us there in the west, right? Not a good point there. TJ, thanks very much for your call. To you, Anthony, we'll go to uh, to Bill in Calgary next. But here's here's a quote. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president, who happens to also be a Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters, and the church does not speak for me. Period. John Kennedy, 1960. The script was written 50 years ago. Does Andrew Shear not know how to read? My God, man, it was so so tactfully and perfectly packaged up by John Kennedy so many decades ago. Why didn't Shear get the message and 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 abide by that kind of hardline? Don't give me that nonsense and don't try to hang that around my neck. Instead, he let them do it. I genuinely gotta tell you, I don't know. This is the truly shocking thing, right? In political campaigns, there's some stuff you just can't anticipate, right? There's things that happen. Situations like, give you an unfortunate, a very sad and unfortunate example from 2050, right? Alan Kurdi, the of the young Syrian boy washed up on the beach, right? And the whole sort of thing, right. discussion that went around there, and then the right. bombs. Are, that's something that you can't that you can't control. Like the international event that happens in turns the campaign off, but. When Andrew Shearer was elected leader of the Conservative Party in May of 2017, everybody knew he was going to be pestered with these questions in time for the election. We had two years to prepare. Exactly. Right? And like so there's no excuse. There should have been a better answer, but unfortunately there wasn't. And to give you an answer, I, I genuinely can't think of one beyond incompetence, unfortunately. Yeah. Bill in Calgary, over to you, sir, and thank you for waiting. Good afternoon, Sterling. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Bill. Only a couple of minutes here, so if you could make your point quickly to Anthony and me, it'd be great. I was talking to a president of one of the companies in Montreal, and uh, we were talking about this. And he said, we wanted, we didn't want to vote for Trudeau. We wanted anybody but Trudeau, but he mm-hmm. said, here, did just not come across in Quebec. So he says, that's the reason the Quebec wall got back into the position they're in now, is because the Conservatives let Quebecois back in the game. And he said they did not want to vote for Trudeau, but they had no other options. They didn't want to go uh, vote for Scheer. Interestingly enough, so even though he cleaned up in the West, he lost Quebec. Exactly. Yeah. He Interesting call. with the voters in Quebec. Sterling Fox in for Roy Green on the Chorus Radio Network. Nice to be with you on a Saturday afternoon. Anthony Kosh is a McGill University student and political commentator joining us from Montreal. Bruce is a Canadian voter joining us from Calgary. Good afternoon, Bruce. Thanks for waiting. Anthony's with us and uh, Bruce is with us uh, from Calgary, I think. Yeah, we're just trying to get all these lines straightened out. New guy, can you tell? Bruce, you with us? 
having a little difficulty on the board. Anthony, are you with us too? I'm here. All right, good stuff, because the the one thing that uh, is bothering a lot of people, that they're just not having, uh, tying all the, the, the loose ends off, is this uh, this suddenly uh, new uh, $900,000 uh, un- uh, question mark uh, uh, surrounding some funds, uh, whether that was the leader's office uh, in preparation for the the the, the election. Uh, it, it, are you making anything of this, or is this an accounting situation that will work itself out? No, so, so here's what happens. So every year, this is based on my discussions with people on the fund and sources, et cetera, the, the leader's office, from party money is allocated what generally amounts to between like 190 to 210, $220,000. So let's average it out around $200,000 a year. Now, from what I've been told, that also included um, the budget that Mr. Harper had in 2015 in the run up to that specific year as well. That's the okay. election. Now, from January 1st, 2019 until October 2019, that same budget that's usually around Hundred thousand was nine hundred and forty thousand. So now there's a lot of questions about. Okay, well, this guy spent seven hundred and forty grand more than usual. What exactly did you spend it on? Mm. And the fact that we haven't really received a clear, specific answer on any of this beyond, oh well, you know, leadership-related expenses and right. run up to an election campaign, exactly, leads me to believe that there's a, there's something more going on here. Mm. All right. Well, we'll leave the forensic people to figure all that out. Bruce has uh, finally made his way through to the airwaves of the Chorus Radio Network. Thank you for your patience. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, hi. Um, I, uh, sorry I accidentally muted you. Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> Worst things have been wished upon me, Bruce. Believe me. Well, anyhow. I know this is an old bugaboo, but, I, but part of it I blame on the, not individual reporters, but on the Eastern-based media because... Uh, Trudeau would make a gaffe, and you might hear about it once. Uh, sure, they'd ask him a question, he'd give a straight answer, and then they kept asking it, asking it, asking it, so that they were trying their level best to trip him up. They never asked that, did that to Trudeau, or Miss May, or Mr. Singh. And, so... Uh, because uh, it was like there was they were doing a hatchet job on them. Well, it was uh, but definitely there were there were different standards at play. Then that was pretty obvious. I mean, election campaign is is a snapshot, but it does last for twenty eight days minimum. Uh, and there's uh, it, it's pretty easy to sort of pay attention to which which sides are are forming up. And I would agree that in general, Bruce, I think the prime minister got a much softer ride than Mr. Shear. That's right, and. I know this is cons- or tinfoil hat. It seems like it's amazing how good of how much positive coverage you can get for six hundred million dollars. <laughs> ah, yes, the old slush fund for the, uh, the the news business, which appears to be in some kind of trouble. So why not get them on side by promising them a bailout? Yeah, good point, uh, Bruce. A well, a, a well-made, cynical point, but a good one nonetheless. Because, well, anybody in their right mind would look or look at Trudeau and all the crap that he pulled why and anybody or why would anybody in their right mind vote for more of that of that garbage corruption and and frankly criminality no well placed questions bruce thank you very much for your call sir anthony the, do, do you agree that uh, the pm got a much easier ride than mr Shear? 
I think I think every conservative leader, no matter whether the name Andrew Scheer, Stephen Harper, or anybody, is going to face a slightly hostile media. I think that's part of the definition of a job. That's part of the right. job description, right? Right. And that's why it's so important that we have a leader who's able to effectively communicate and cut through a lot of that biased media coverage, specifically so that we can get our message across to Canadians specifically. But I, I do have to say, though, that I disagree that uh, journalists repeatedly asking Mr. Scheer about his stance on same-sex marriage and homosexuality in general, was unfair. I think it's completely fair. I think uh, we've gotten to a place now, societally, culturally, where people want a prime minister who is, broadly speaking, pro-gay marriage, and it's an ally of lesbian and gay Canadians. And by, right? And somebody actually, a, a gay friend of mine put it up this way, and I thought it was really appropriate, right? because initially I had been more favorable to the idea that, oh, well, you know, it's his personal views, but he's not going to change the law. And he said, Anthony, let me ask you a question. If there was a politician who told you that they were personally opposed to interracial marriage, but that they weren't going to vote, or that they weren't going to change the law, what would we call that person a racist? Mm. Do you think it would be a, do you think it would be fairly sure that there would be a, at least a couple Canadians that wouldn't feel comfortable voting for that person because they thought they were a racist and didn't represent their values as citizens of this country? And I said, you know what, you got a point. And I think we've reached a point now in society we're no longer supporting. Uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual people's right to marriage, to, to marry whoever they so choose, it, it's now it's bigotry. It, it's no longer just a religious position or any sort of this thing. It's a Canadians, broadly speaking, support gay marriage, do right. not see the union of people of the same sex as any different or inferior to those of opposite sex partnerships, and they want a prime minister who reflects that. Good point. And uh, let's talk to some more voters here because our phone board is very busy. I'm delighted to say Bill in Whitby, Ontario is up next. Bill, uh, what do you think of all of this business? I blame the Conservative Party itself. They have to become more progressive. They they have to present a leader who is which I called Andrew Shear from Mayberry. That's not going to fly in vote-rich Ontario or Quebec. It's just right. not going to fly. You can present whatever. You're going to fall constantly in the loopholes of, of being sabotaged by progressive issues like uh, abortion and uh, gay rights. If you if you want to become viable, you have to become progressive, like a, a red Tories. You, you have to present a person like Ronna Ambrose, Peter McKay, or John Barrett, who who will who don't have those old stances. Because unfortunately, Canada really is much more a liberal-based country. And mm-hmm. I, know it, I know it's not fair to people in the West, but unfortunately is the, 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 the system that we have set up right now, if you don't win in Quebec and you don't win in the GTA, you're not going to win this country. And so who among that short list of players that you just talked about, Bill, uh, is, in your mind, best equipped to represent those values to the country in a winning way. I think the person who presented herself as an interim leader was Ronna Ambrose. Not only is she progressive sounding, she's a woman, and uh, she did very well. She's done very well in the international thing, dealing with the latest free trade issues. I, I think she's a very viable candidate. It's just getting her to run. But if this party wants to continue to be a big C party, it's not going to win. You know, I'm sorry to say you've got to change your ways, and you'll be dogged by those issues. 
Yeah, I agree with you. By the way, Bill, just as an aside, you realize that Justin Trudeau is contemplating appointing Rana Ambrose to the post of ambassador to the United States uh, for, for, for the reason I think you've just articulated. She is his biggest threat across the aisle. You know, just, just to end, have you noticed how much Justin Trudeau has given the reins of his power to Freeland? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which was done for a reason. It was totally done for a reason because he knows the power that that woman has and the influence and the attractiveness she has to the Canadian pace. Interesting. Bill, thanks very much for your call. I appreciate hearing from you this afternoon. Anthony, uh, there, you know, we have a few favorites. No one has declared. Uh, Rana Ambrose certainly enjoys a tremendous amount of support from conservatives and conservative voters, not just party members, regular folks. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I, I would very much like to see her enter the race. I don't have any favorite at the time being. Uh, a couple of candidates have reached out and there's already an unofficial grouping that is sort of assembled. To be quite honest with you, to everybody who's holding out on, on Miss Ambrose coming into the race, while she hasn't ruled anything out just yet, she has been making the phone calls and taking the steps that somebody who wants to run for leader of the party needs to be doing. Uh-huh. So, so far so far, if I'm if you're if you're asking me and I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I don't think she's gonna enter the race. I really hope she does. I really like to see her. I think she has a very important voice to bring to the table, and I think she very well could become the next leader and the next prime minister of this country. But uh, so far, the acts that a potential leader needs to be taking, she hasn't been making. Anthony Kosh is a young conservative commentator at McGill University in Montreal, and Louise is a very patient voter somewhere in Alberta. Louise, is it Innisfree? And good afternoon. Thank yes, Thanks for waiting. Of Edmonton. Gotcha. And uh, what are your thoughts today, Louise? Uh, um, my thoughts is what I've been listening to the other guests uh, talk about, values. Uh, why Shear did not pronounce his, announce, uh, I mean, cl- clarify his values. Mm-hmm. Because Trudeau's values, I was still think that Trudeau's values of lying, breaking ethics rules, breaking the law, and other blackface, to name a few, those are Trudeau's values, and he's always talking about Canadian values. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has never been, like uh, one of the callers said, the media. And, uh, you know, uh, the fellow you have on now, a conservative, when you're away, I've been at uh, 76 years. I was uh, working for the Pro- uh, Progressive Conservatives since our neighbor, Don Mazankowski, was Deputy Prime Minister for Mulroney. I had worked All right, yeah, sure. Maz, so I know you a bet. bit about politics. Uh, when you're in the mix, in the circle, you can't see the forest for the trees at what other people are thinking. For example, I would bring up, if I was the media, stick the mic in somebody's face and ask Trudeau, is it a sin to lie? Like, I mean, I would, I would love to be out there. The pundits sometimes are so afraid to tackle Trudeau. It, it's just, and, and as can be seen, Rona Ambrose, I'm on Twitter, and there's thousands of followers that say when she was on TV and said one of her values, I was the first conservative to march in the Pride Parade turned thousands of people off. Mm. Because is that a prerequisite of being a good prime minister? 
Well, I don't know. Let's uh, thank you, Louise. I appreciate your patience and okay. joining us. And let's ask Anthony in Montreal. He's okay. a, a young conservative guy who seems to think that in 2019, make that 2020 in a few days. The, the leader. Thing of, is, I'm not pr- uh, against uh, the rights and all that, but uh, a lot of people think that it's gone too far. That you have to. I have friends that are gay, and and they wouldn't march in the parade. So. This is uh, the, the media is very, very uh, lazy and very. They're like jackals and hyenas. After gotcha. Th- thanks very much, Louise. Gotcha. I just need to get Anthony to respond to this because her, her Louise's point is why? Why must a, co- a conservative party leader bow down to pride? The pride movement. So well, bow down. So here's here's my position. I can say this as somebody who has walked in the Montreal Pride Parade. Uh, does I, I think it should be appropriate for conservative leaders, but I uh, to, to march in the pride parade. I don't think it's obligatory. Right. I think there's other. I think there's other ways that people can can show their support. The problem is we haven't been very good at that. Okay, and especially when we look historically, I think when you have every political leader of every major political party walking in pride parades, the same way we go to a Greek Independence Day parade or any other cultural community based event that mm-hmm. all the political leaders go to. Sure. This is the one that we don't want to walk in for reasons X, Y, and Z. And then you say, you go back and you look through the order papers and this and that to when the debates about same-sex marriage were happening in this country, and you realize once again that it was the conservatives, some people who are still politicians in this country who opposed it. I think in most people's minds, they go, oh, I guess they just still haven't gotten with the times. That's the message that's being effectively communicated. You know, if Andrew Scheer would have come out and, let's say, Proposed to end uh, the ban on on uh, on gay men uh, giving blood, for example, uh, donating blood. If we would have come out with a true broad-based LGBT policy plank that would have shown our allyship, I don't think it would have been the end of the world. But at the end of the day, it's very simple to do what Doug Ford did. Okay, Toronto Pride and that stuff is a little bit too ideological for you. Fine, you find the most boring, least controversial Pride parade that you can. You walk in it so that people understand you are an ally, you do support the community, you back that up with further policy and, and, and efforts in government and or in opposition to show the community that you stand with them, and then nobody will ever ask you the question ever again. Yeah, right. When Just you have the ambiguity, and when you don't give good answers... You leave the door open. Yes, and you haven't walked the walk to show people that you actually are an ally, or worse yet, the case of Mr. Scheer... You have a history of not being an ally. And by the way, this is the thing, too. The previous caller said, you know, Trudeau did this blackface 15 years ago, and now she had a position 15 years ago, and why does he have to face the answer? The fact of the matter is Mr. Shear's position didn't change, and mm-hmm. he said so. He said, no, my position, for all intents and purposes, is the same as it was 15 years ago. I just realized Canadians no longer want to have this debate. But Canadians knew in their heart of hearts that if, it was possible if Andrew Scheer could have the Canada he wanted in his mind, gay people would not be allowed to get married in this country. And I yeah. think a lot of people have issues with that, rightfully so. Anthony, let's squeeze one more caller in here before we have to let you go. And we'll be, uh, we're back in Toronto with Brian on the line next. Brian, thank you for waiting. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, right. Scheer lost because he didn't want to go in the pride parade and be ridiculed. You know, when they first elected him leader... I, I just caught the end of the convention. I got, he got on stage. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. 
this is the man you think should be a prime minister, stand up in the world and everything else with that constant smirk on his face? Sorry, but it's that's the way things are these days. It's just looks. And the biggest reason he lost was because of all the multicultural immigrants his father flooded into southern Ontario. They didn't want to vote for him. Sometimes, you know, they'll vote conservative if it's, you know, somebody like the last one, who's mm-hmm. an economist. But this one, no, they weren't going to do it. And why in that last convention of the conservatives they didn't allow Rona Ambrose to, to run? That was a ridiculous idiotic mistake and i hope she runs now and i hope to see justin's hair turn white when that happens (laughs) (laughs) brian you have the last word sir thank you very much for your call i appreciate your patience and we need to get it in there Uh, a part of the knock against sheer anthony the guy's a professional politician never had a real job in his whole life and uh got caught yep and i agree with that at the end of the day right it turned out the six months insurance job that he had wasn't even as a broker, right? Like, what you know, you really, I think a lot of Canadians, you really want to elect a guy who lied about being an insurance broker as your leader? I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely an issue. Well, Anthony, we appreciate your patience in extending your time with us this afternoon. It's been a very lively conversation, and we did get around to some of those values that can, that conservatives and Canadians are. Well, we do cherish them and want to see them articulated by people we can respect and get behind. And, of course, that's a whole other process about to unfold, and perhaps we'll have a chance to talk about it as it, uh, it unfolds before our very eyes. Merry Christmas to you, Anthony. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you as well. There's Anthony Kosh from McGill, and uh, we appreciate all your calls on this matter. Conservative values, they are real, they are worth standing up for. So Merry Christmas. We say that to each other a lot, don't we? Or do we anymore? Mario Canseco is a good friend and president of Research Company, one of Canada's premier polling agencies. And he's with us this afternoon to talk about, well, what used to be called the War on Christmas. (laughs) Mario, good afternoon and welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Terry. Great to be here. It's good to have you with us. The war on Christmas, it seems more so in uh, in the States than up here, but is that now passe? Is it okay to say Merry Christmas again? Well, it's a little bit of a shift. You know, when I asked this question last year, uh, we had more than 7 in 10 Canadians who said Merry Christmas was their greeting for the season. Mm-hmm. And now we see the numbers shifting a little bit. We have uh, uh, 65% of Canadians who actually say Merry Christmas is the one they like. That's down nine points since last year. And Happy Holidays climbing the charts a little bit, going from 14% last year to 18% this year. So we continue to see a three-to-one margin as far as Merry Christmas being the uh, holiday greeting for most Canadians compared to Happy Holidays. Mario, when you're asking these poll questions, and I know you only have a certain amount of time with each respondent, do they do do people say, or do they have an opportunity to tell your research team members why that not only yes, I would prefer personally, I would prefer saying Merry Christmas rather than Happy Holidays, and I'm 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 doing that because I feel pressured not to say Merry Christmas. Do people say that to your research? That has happened quite many times. I think one of the situations that we see here is a little bit of a change uh, related to age. Uh, There's younger generations who are more likely to be saying, I I want to say this because it's the safest option, not necessarily because it's the one I like. 
And when you move on to Generation Xers, there's fewer of them who are saying happy holidays. And when you get to baby boomers, there's definitely the fewest of them who are saying happy holidays. So part of it has to do with uh, the fact that it has been traditional to say Merry Christmas and not happy holidays for many of uh, the oldest Canadians. Uh, but for the youngest Canadians, it's a bit of a 50-50 split. You know, half of them are saying, well, it's good to uh, incorporate every single uh, belief for those who don't even have them to simply say happy holidays. Right. And there are others who say, I feel safer if I just say happy holidays when I really want to say Merry Christmas. Right. And and that was that was uh, and a lot of people got their backs up because there has been I mean, this war on Christmas. I mean, it, it's kind of funny. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, except there has been a lot of pressure in recent years to steer away from that traditional thing and and be more generic. You know, for example, Starbucks coffee had that wonderful Christmas blend that they brought out into the marketplace a few years ago. And it was a huge hit, kind of tasty, frankly. But this year, as was the case last year, Mario, it's holiday blend. It's changed. Yeah, it, it has been happening more in the United States. I think part of the situation, uh, we have to go back to the... Uh, 2008 election, and after Barack Obama got elected, there were a little bit of changes when it came to the holiday greetings from the White House, uh, which have now disappeared after Donald Trump uh, became president. But there was this moment where you went from um, somebody like George W. Bush was an evangelical Christian and was always mm-hmm. talking about his faith to somebody like Barack Obama, who said we're going to be more inclusive. And right. now you go back to Trump, who desperately needs those evangelical votes if he wants to win the next election. So I think part of the reason for the war on a, a Christmas, uh, quote unquote, was that you had somebody like uh, a Barack Obama in the White House, who was more likely to say, let's be more inclusive than what his predecessor or the person who is there now uh, would have done. Interesting. And in the uh, in the interest of inclusive inclusivity, Mario, when your poll team was canvassing Canadians about their sentiments on the holidays and greetings and so on, uh, did you find, for example, Canadians who were uh, who are immigrants to the country have any different reaction or choice of phrase than Canadians who were born and raised here? Or did you even get into that that demographic breakdown? Oh, no, this is something that I always look into. Uh, we didn't see a lot of differences in the numbers. I, I, you know, it's, a, it's, it's one of those things that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, if you're new to the country or if you come from a country that doesn't have a Christmassy tradition, so to speak, you're more likely to say happy holidays. Uh, but it's not the case. I think what we see is a situation where there's definitely people who would like to be more inclusive, uh, but it's not related to where you came from or the types of activities that you did in the country uh, where you lived before you, you came to Canada. So there's no wild fluctuation that says, you know, if you were born in Canada, Merry Christmas climbs to 90%. Right. If you weren't here, Happy Holidays is the one that is the number one choice. Um, it doesn't have a lot to do with that. I know it's uh, something that has been assumed many times, um, but that type of inclusivity doesn't really matter when it comes to the greetings that you would like to see uh, used more often. Interesting stuff. Now, that, and I, I thought it was worth asking because I know you're very thorough in your polling approaches, Mario. Now, for example, this was a national poll. So did you find, for example, anywhere or regions or parts of Canada more inclined to lean one way than others? There are regional differences across this enormous country. Absolutely. I think one of the key issues here is uh, the importance of the province of Quebec. We have happy holidays at 31% in Quebec, which is the highest proportion that we see anywhere in the country. 
um, definitely something that was eye-catching to me. Everywhere else, it's under 20%. You go from a place like uh, Ontario at 17%, British Columbia at 14%. So not a lot of changes there. And when you look at Merry Christmas, that's where the numbers also fluctuate because of Quebec. We go from a high of 75% in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, 73% in Atlantic Canada, more than two-thirds in BC and Alberta. You get to Quebec, it's 50%. So it reminds me of when I ask about the monarchy, you always have this fluctuation because Quebecers aren't really that fond of the monarchy. If True. you were to take those numbers out of the national average, the level of support for the monarchy would be even higher. Interesting stuff. So Quebec is the sort of the X factor in a lot of these equations then. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the other things that we see here, aside from the age demographics, there's there's no gender gap. I think that was also quite interesting when I was looking at the data tables, making sure that everything was right. We have no gender gap when it comes to Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. It's 65% okay. of men, 65% of women. It has more to do with regionality and your age than your gender. Okay. And did and do people, uh, when you have the chance to question them, because you talked about some people of faith and other people of no faith, it is, is that a, a formal question when you're asking about uh, your sentiments on holidays? Are you a, a faith-based human being? Is that, I'm, I'm phrasing the question probably poorly, but is there that type of question? Oh, definitely. This one includes, uh, we have one, one question related to the importance of religion in your daily life. Okay. And it's 48% of Canadians who say that it's very important or moderately important. So it's a lower number than the level of support that we see, so to speak, for Merry Christmas. So th this is important to me in the sense of it's not only those who are actively participating in religion who say that religion is important in their daily lives, uh, who say that Merry Christmas is their holiday greeting. I mean, we do see 53% of uh, Canadians who say it's not too important, it's not important at all sure. in their daily lives, but they're still saying Merry Christmas. So one thing doesn't necessarily mean that the other one is not going to show up. And of course, we are approaching that time of the, of the year, Mario, when a lot of people who normally do not participate in religious activities or uh, group celebrations will, uh, according to ancient family traditions and all the rest of it, go to a midnight mass or a Christmas Day service of some description. And that would be, in, in many cases, that'd be it for the year. Yes, uh, we have seen a situation here where there's a uh, Many Canadians who uh, have lost touch with organized religion over the years and, and they end up becoming people who, for instance, go to Mass only on Easter or, uh, or on a, a Christmas or right. if there's somebody who is getting married uh, at a specific temple, then that is the kind of thing that happens. Um, it's definitely something that is affecting uh, certain parts of the country more. You know, we have seen uh, with the latest census statistics uh, the number of residents of B.C., um, who say that they have no religion has is the highest in the entire country, followed by Quebec. So there's a little bit of a shift going on as far as organized religion. It doesn't mean that spirituality is not important. It right. means that uh, the way you were brought into religion is probably not something that is palatable at this stage in your life. Interesting stuff. Can you stay with us, Mario? I have to take a quick break, but uh, this whole breaking down of, of, of the numbers regarding religion, religiosity, and of course the formality of seasonal greetings, it's its very interesting stuff. You got a few extra minutes? Gladly, I'll stay. All right. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Company. 
joined by Mario Canseco, Paul Meister extraordinary, and president of Research Company, talking about Merry Christmas and all of our traditional seasonal greetings and how popular they still are and where across Canada. We did open up our phone lines. Christopher is joining us from Calgary. Chris, what do you think about all of this? Do you say Merry Christmas when you uh, extend greetings of the season to your family and friends, or what have you chosen to say as an alternative if you don't? Mario, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Uh, there's Christopher now. Okay, go ahead, please. We put so much emphasis on one day of the year being the only day in which you're meant to be saying, how is your going, like Merry Christmas, everything else. Say it every day. I wish every single person with a stranger, friend, or family a good morning or good afternoon every time I walk past them. Right. Because it costs you nothing to pass a random act of kindness. Right. Comes down to the holiday season for it. Celebrate the family that you're with. It's not about the religion anymore. It's really not. The whole thing that you said about how people do one day of the year to go to church, it's a mm-hmm. joke to me. I'm not religious in any sense of the word. But I will wish my family who celebrates Christmas a Merry Christmas. I will wish my family who celebrates Hanukkah a Happy Hanukkah. Sure. And I will wish the strangers on the street a wonderful holiday season. Not that they should spend in a religious aspect, but they should spend enjoying tasty food, delicious drinks, and the family that they love the most. That's Christopher. Well said, sir, and thank you very much for your call. Mario, I don't think you're going to find a whole lot to disagree with, and in fact, I think Christopher's uh, reaction represents a lot of Canadians you've spoken with over the past few weeks. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, it definitely makes sense to to try to have that spirit going for the entire year. You know, there's nothing worse than uh, the situation of having people fighting over the last toy at the store or, you know, having that, those kinds of moments mm-hmm. uh, that make you forget what the season should be about. And we should continue to feel that way throughout the rest of the year and not only when the calendar hits the next year. Good point, indeed. Let's go to Winnipeg next and see what Jim has to say about all of this Merry Christmas business. Jim, good afternoon. Hi there, how are you? All right, thanks. So what do you say? Um, I actually... I guess I'm sort of an oddball. I don't say anything. I just, I wait for the person to say, you know, happy holidays to me or Merry Christmas or happy Hanukkah because I, I'm not of any religion and I don't really celebrate any of the holidays per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, to me, it's, it's really about the person who's saying it to me. Whatever is meaningful to them, I will say it back to them. And uh, just sort of, sort of go with that. Sort of a go with the flow kind of guy, Jim. Yes, yes. Well, then you know, it, and Mario, thanks, Jim. I appreciate your call, uh, Mario. It, Jim makes a point. You know, it's a time of year when we're not supposed to be, you know, on edge, walking around with a chip the size of a small European country on our shoulders, <laughs> daring anyone to knock it off. We're not supposed to be that chippy these days. And if somebody says. Merry Christmas, then you should say Merry Christmas back. Uh, our, 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 uh, one of our, our teammates in Hamilton, uh, Will, was telling us about a, a, an experience he had as a retail clerk in a store, and he, after uh, serving the customer again at this time of year, wished the woman um, a happy holidays. And she just went right off on him. That's not what you say to a customer. You're supposed to say Merry Christmas, wah, 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 and she really unloaded on him. That's not typical anymore, is it? It's not. I think we've moved into a situation where it's better to wait to see what the other person is going to say. Sure. To try not to correct them. I think that's also part of the situation. You know, there's a 
there's a way to to deal with this type of thing and just wish the other person well uh, without having to correct them or to tell them that this is the wrong way to do it on, on either side of the debate where you are. Exactly. Uh, we've got some more people who have, well, wishes, holiday wishes of one description or another, uh, including Sarah in Calgary next. Sarah, good afternoon. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. I'm enjoying your show. Thank you. What do you I say do- in your family and in your life? Well, I am Jewish, and I always get asked if I'm offended if people wish me a Merry Christmas. Yeah. I'm absolutely not offended if they wish me a Merry Christmas because it's meant out of kindness. It's never mm-hmm. meant to hurt anybody. Sure. And it's no different than Happy Halloween, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy whatever. If I know what somebody's religion is, if I know what they are celebrating, I do work in a in a retail situation. I today was saying Merry Christmas to people, and if people knew who I was, they would say Happy Hanukkah to me or Merry Christmas. In each case, I'd say Thank you very much. Enjoy the sure. holiday. But I think happy holidays, when people get upset about that, is just silly, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mario, you, you, uh, thank you very much, Sarah. I appreciate your comments and, and very sensibly put forward, Mario. I think most of us are feeling a little less defensive about uh, the Merry Christmas business than we were maybe even two or three years ago when the politically correct set really clamped down on it. Well, yeah, I think, you know, part of the situation when you're wishing somebody well, you, you don't want to feel like there's something that you need to do or that you have to do or that you're forced to do in a specific way. And I think that's definitely part of what has changed over the past few years. I mean, there's always going to be that situation. Maybe you're not religious. Maybe you have a, a different religion. But when, when somebody says Merry Christmas, uh, it's not supposed to be an insult. And, and you know, it, it's definitely not uh, the way in which most people would feel about it. There's definitely some that, that get riled up uh, because of it. But it, uh, it's not something that we see all the time. That's why it was so nice to hear from Sarah. As a Jewish person who, uh, you know, as a, a person, uh, you get wished well throughout this season by lots of people who don't know of your ethnicity or religious affiliation. And they'll say Merry Christmas. And she says Merry Christmas right back. Not offended yeah. in the least. One more call here. Sharon in London, Ontario, the most patient person on the phone board. Thank you for waiting. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm actually a Catholic. I, I've never practiced the religion, and I really consider myself an atheist. But, I, you know, here in, in our Western culture, our society is based on Christianity. And this this is a Christmas holiday, and I'm actually uh, tired of the happy holidays. I really am. Um, I think that uh, people have created problems that weren't there, and the concern about offending people from different mm-hmm. cultures and religions and yes, we do live in a multicultural society, uh, but, you know, we uh, have uh, allowed people from other religions and other cultures the privilege of really joining our society. And uh, we, we can't be concerned uh, whether or not they or anybody else is going to be offended. And I, I'm really tired of the, the watering down of Christmas, and I really believe that 100 years from now, Christmas is, will, will not be um, it really will be just another uh, stat holiday. I think that the kids in school today are being indoctrinated into this, um, you know, a watered-down society where everybody has to feel good. We can't mm-hmm. step on anybody's toes. We have to consider everybody else's feelings. And, and you know, problems have been created when they're not even there. Good so, point, Sharon. I have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time, and I want to give Mario 20 seconds to react to your call, for which I thank you very much. Good points there, Mario. 
Thank you. Absolutely. I think it's an it's an important situation because you, you need to go back to the origins of the country, to the origins of many of these uh, holidays that we have. And, and this is the only one where we have that controversy. You know, you don't wish people happy Labor Day and no. get a response that says I'm retired or I'm a student. You know, that's we right need to tone it down a little bit. No kidding. Mario, thanks for this. Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas to you and to all the audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 